Hello, and thank you for joining us for this podcast. I'm David Bond, a partner in Field Fisher's franchise and licensing team, and I'm joined by my fellow partner, Gordon Drakes. Over the next 30 minutes or so, we'll be looking at what steps a business should take if it wishes to expand using a franchise model. For now, we'll be focusing on expansion in the business's home market, but we'll be publishing a follow-up podcast where we consider issues relevant to the international expansion. So let me just start by asking you, Gordon, what are the possible structures that a business might use if it's looking to expand? And of those, why would it choose franchising? Thanks, David. Yeah, so I think putting it into context as to why franchising in particular is relevant now, as we're coming out of the lockdown with the the pandemic and businesses are looking ahead to how they're going to survive and grow over the next uh, 18 months or two years, then franchising actually is a good, it's a good uh, reminder to businesses as, uh, the op- as an option for their, for their growth. It's particularly useful in a downturn when there might be restrictions on access to capital. Um, and also with the, um, one of the quirks coming out of the pandemic, which is maybe a, m- a move towards more kind of hyper-localised living and consumption. Again, franchising can well play an important part of the economic recovery. Um, it's already a, an established business model in the UK. Just a quick uh, few stats on that. So the total contribution to the uh, UK economy is 17 billion, and that's up 14% from 2015. There's, according, this is according to the BFA NatWest survey that was published last year. There's 48,600 units. Right? So there are about 20,000 franchisees out there. That's doubled in the last 25 years. Um, and there's very high unit profitability and very low failure rates only about 1%, which compares very favorably against um, business startups. Um, so there's definitely good reasons as to why franchising um, is, is an attractive model. But maybe first of all, we can look at, as you say, there's, there's other options. So let's, let's have a quick look into, into what they are. First of all, what is franchising in its broadest sense? It is essentially a license of a trademark um, to a franchisee. Uh, and that's, that trademark is associated with the provision of goods and services. Um, but also in addition to that, there's a lot of other things going on. There's, there's also a license of a business format for in the way in which a franchisee might provide those goods and services to a customer. And that's usually in a uniform and easily replicable uh, system. Um, there may well be uh, the license of copyright materials, promotional materials, software, hardware. And there's usually an operating manual which encapsulates a lot of, a lot of the way in which that business is operated. And all of that is packaged up in a franchise agreement um, and the manual, which we'll, we're going to come on to later to talk about. Another hallmark of a franchise relationship is, is also a long term commitment um, from both parties. Um, in most systems, the franchisee is the local face of the brand. So there's a, a strong focus on local marketing and high quality service to, to customers. Uh, but also typically the franchisee will contract with, with the customer. Um, an alternative to that is a distribution model, which is um, a very long established and, and, uh, and well-known model. And that's really kind of one step removed where you've still got potentially the license of trademarks, but it hasn't really got that element of a, a licensing of a business format and system. There isn't that same level of commitment necessarily or investment. Um, so that there's, there's, a, there's a real distinction there between franchising and a, and a pure distribution type um, relationship. The third option is is agency or commercial agency, and that's uh, slightly more um, easily distinguishable from those first two. Um, there, an agent's principal role is to um, promote the business and generate goodwill in the brand and potentially generate sales leads and may even conclude contracts. 
but the key point there is an agent does not enter into a direct contractual relationship with the customer. Typically, that would be between the principal or the franchisor in that case would enter, would have that direct contractual relationship with the customer. Now, interestingly, franchising, distribution agency, they're all they're all kind they're all forms of third party relationships. So that's really probably the main thing to think about as a business is what if, we, if we're going to be working with a third party outside of our organization to grow our business, let's not get too hung up on labels. Let's just think about how how is it going to work? And actually, you'll find that a number of franchise systems actually use a kind of a hybrid of an agency and distribution model as well. So an example might be in the um, in the real estate sector, sometimes for letting agents, um, they will the franchisee will be effectively acting like a like a like an agent. They're not necessarily contracting directly with the franchisee with a, with a customer. Um, equally, some um, franchise systems, there might be a distribution element to it as well, where the franchisee will operate the core retail business. That might be a coffee shop, for example, but they might also act as a distributor selling selling products in wholesale channels to get those products onto supermarket shelves or or retail uh, in other retail channels. So it's a real it's a real mixture. And there's my I think the main message here is not to get too hung up on the labels and just to make sure that whatever agreements you've got accurately describe the commercial and legal relationship that, that's right for your business. So, David, going back to you then, I mean, one, once the business has decided that of those options that they want to go down the franchising route, um, what are the first things that they uh, they should consider in your view? Yeah, thanks, Gordon. I guess the first thing is the brand. I mean, that is the core of the uh, the franchise, the brand that the franchise is using. Um, so look at the brand. Is it protected? Uh, has the business got uh, trademark protection in the UK? This is irrelevant to franchising in many respects. Uh, if you're using a brand, uh, you want to protect it. You want to make sure that nobody else is going to be using that brand to um, to take advantage of your of the goodwill that you've got in your business. So protect the brand, make sure you can register it. And if not, adapt the brand to a form that can be registered. You're going to be asking franchisees to pay fees to you for them to use your brand. Uh, an unregistered brand can be licensed, but it doesn't give the same uh, security to a franchisee and it doesn't uh, make the business look as professional as if it has a registered mark. So get the registration done, um, then look at the system. Uh, the other element that you'll be uh, licensing to a franchisee as well as the brand is the system, the way that you do your business. And there you're looking at what makes it different, what, um, what identifies it as your branded uh, concept. Not all coffee shops are the same. So apart from the name of the coffee shop, what else do they do differently to set them apart? And if necessary, look at the way that you operate and streamline it. Because again, in a franchise, what you'll be doing is you'll be training your franchisees to operate the business in accordance with your system. If your system is overly complicated and not streamlined, it can be very difficult to train franchisees in how to operate it. So simplify it, streamline it where you need to. And then once you've got the uh, different components of the system, make sure that you own them. Or if you don't own them, make sure that you have the right to sublicense them to your franchisees. And here what I'm talking about is things like copyright primarily. But um, to give you an example, a menu in a restaurant, who created the menu? Who created the images on the logo? If it was an employee, then they will automatically be owned by the uh, the employer, the, the, the business. So that, that's fine. They're owned. If a consultant or somebody that wasn't acting as an employee created copyright material, then they retain ownership. So approach those people, make sure you get an assignment to the business so that you're ready to uh, license them to franchisees. Do that now. 
Don't wait until you've got a network of 10, 20 franchisees and then approach the owner of that material because invariably the cost of getting an assignment will change, uh, typically upward. And then finally, once you've identified the system and the component parts, put a record of that system together. Start documenting in a way that you can have a physical, tangible uh, summary of how your business works. This will be needed later on when you develop what we call an operations and training manual, something that um, we'll talk about later in the podcast. But at this very early stage, start documenting the system and how it works and what are the key parts of your business. So I guess that once these elements are secure, once you've identified them, once you make sure that you own them or have the rights to sublicense them, then you need to look at how you're going to pass all of this over to a, to a franchisee. So here I'm talking about what documents do you use to record the terms of the franchise. And Gordon, if I can pass back to you, just to summarize what are the key documents that are relevant to a franchise uh, system. Sure, thanks. Um, so first off, would I would say a disclosure document is, is useful. It's a, is, is essentially a pre-contractual document. Um, but the purpose of that really is to is for a franchisor to um, lay out to a prospective franchisee um, all some of those details you've been talking about in terms of what you know what is the system what are the key financial terms what is the key commitment financially and legally under the franchise agreement and also giving a bit of background and history to the to the franchise or the business and the brand um, so that's that's an important document so that before there's a league the entering into the kind of the legally binding franchise agreement that both parties have full knowledge and understanding of, of each other and the business that they're getting into now that's not a it's not a legal requirement in the uk to do that if if a franchise system is a member of the british franchise association the bfa then that's part of their code of ethics and their membership terms is that any franchise system does issue a disclosure document and indeed there's a number of countries around the world where there are franchise specific laws that require a disclosure document so that's that's certainly a document that's worth investing in we'll come come on to that a bit later on as to as to why from a legal point of view that's uh, that's a good thing to have um, the second element is obviously the franchise agreement um, and again if, if you're a franchise or that's um, looking at BFA membership or is a, a member of the BFA then it's a requirement again of their membership um, that you should have a pilot franchise um, in operation before you go on to do a, a broader rollout of your franchise uh, system so you might want to get a pilot agreement in place the purpose of a pilot really is is um, is driven by the fact that you know franchising in, is a business in its own right and it needs to be tried and tested b before there's a wider rollout at least that's the theory and that's something that's um, certainly endorsed by the BFA and and at a European level amongst the other European um, franchise associations so a pilot agreement will not be as long or as detailed as a franchise agreement, but it will it may help may well have some preferential terms in there. There may be some waivers of fees or lower fees than you'd normally get. It's probably going to be a shorter term document, maybe 12 months. Um, and they'll all, and then usually there'll be an opportunity then for the franchisee to convert to a full franchise agreement if both parties feel that it's been a success. Um, but it, that's that's something that that any franchise system should consider. Um, it's that kind of uh, I guess that 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 uh, adage of uh, you know learning to walk before you run it's important if you take that step first although you're not sprinting ahead to to get a full rollout done at least you'll have the there's a lot that can be learned through the pilot phase the other another another key document not really legal document is the operations manual and that really is going to be the amalgamation of all your policies your procedures everything operational the entire kind of NDA, um, uh, dna of the business uh, really needs to sit within that operations manual um, 
that there's, there needs to be an important interplay between um, the franchise agreement and the operations manual because when the franchise agreement is signed it's signed at a fixed point in time um, and obviously therefore it's going to be difficult to change that as the relationship uh, moves on through a five-year or ten-year term but the operations manual should allow the franchisor the flexibility to actually introduce changes over time just as any business will, will evolve over time it gives you that flexibility so it's important to build that into the into the franchise agreement to allow the franchisor the ability to make changes and updates to the manual which don't require the, the franchisees consent necessarily um, but equally from a franchisee perspective you, you need to make sure that you're not going to use the franchisor is not going to use the operations manual as a backdoor way of of listing a whole load of key legal or financial terms which weren't disclosed in the disclosure document or the franchise agreement so there's a an important balance that needs to be needs to be struck but certainly in these times where businesses have had to uh, change and pivot so quickly in the face of the pandemic um, really is a, any franchise system moving forward having a, a strong and robust operations manual that also allows you to, the flexibility to change the system within certain reasonable parameters quickly um, that those are the systems that are going to succeed um, over the over the next few years another element to the franchise relationship that needs to be documented of course is if there's a real estate element is is whether or not the franchise is going to be playing a role um, as, a, as a landlord or a sub landlord to its franchisees obviously if a franchise does take that position they're going to have more control um, over the franchisee and the franchise business generally by also being its landlord but equally that with that comes extra responsibilities uh, and liabilities if, if the franchisee was to um, become insolvent for example or go out of business then it may well be that the franchise always left with a uh, with a lease and and a superior landlord um, sitting above it that it needs to pay those rents to so there's 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 certainly risks involved in that i think our advice would be that to take a mixed approach it may well be that some franchisors want to you can pick and choose and think well our, we, we would like to have a an interest in the most attractive sites um, so that if a franchisee does does leave the business um, then we can potentially step in and do that and take it over um, indeed in any event whether you're a landlord or you're not whether your franchisees are contracting directly with landlords I think franchisors should consider having stepping rights under those franchise agreements and also potentially even agreeing um, up front with with those third-party landlords potentially a, a right to step in and take over the franchisee business on termination or expiry of the franchise agreement and a number of systems do that where where real estate is such an important part um, of the business another key element of the business is is supply where a particular is a product driven business um, it's important again that those terms of supply so the ordering process the payment process that's all documented correctly and properly and again similar to the manual those terms of supply should really be kept out of the main franchise agreement and, and sit in a standard terms and conditions document which again gives the franchise all the flexibility to update those terms from time to time um, and again particularly in, in current situations it's important to to reserve rights in those standard terms and conditions to change credit terms for example if there's a if franchisees are, are falling into arrears and um, so that flexibility is key and the last two points are really about um, uh, financial protection um, and also protection for the know-how so we would recommend that a franchise agreement although that, that will typically be with a limited company usually a special purpose vehicle that's been set up for that franchise specifically let's call it Joe Bloggs Limited um, but if that if that franchisee company owes money or is in breach of the agreement 
um, or is uh, you know looking to to go out of business and and enter into some form of insolvency or administration, they may well not have the funds in that company to pay what they what what's due. But so then therefore the franchise all needs to be able to go after someone else to to recover what's what's owed to it. So that's where you would want Joe Bloggs to be standing behind Joe Bloggs Limited, and that could be a it could be a personal guarantee or it could be a parent company guarantee. Either way, it needs to be a guarantee with from an entity that has the assets to stand behind and, and underwrite the, the franchise business. So again, that would typically be documented separately from the franchise agreement because it may well be that the identity of the guarantee needs to change over time. And that means you can just change a guarantee without changing the franchise agreement. And then finally, linked to that point is again, protection about confidentiality um, and non-competition. So again, Joe Bloggs may be standing behind that, but also there are gonna be some other co-owners or directors or family members and it's likely that they're all going to have access to your valuable information. They're going to be sit. They're going to have access to the manual. Um, so the main purpose of these documents is to create a direct link between the franchisor and those individuals. And those documents really, we don't see them being uh, the subject of litigation and disputes too much. Their main purpose is a deterrent to to make sure that those individuals are aware of what the obligations are in respect of. Um, not operating a competing business or taking and misusing confidential information from the franchisor. So that really kind of in the round is the entire kind of contractual ecosystem that we would recommend that any franchise system has and, and invests in and make sure that they've got those proper agreements in place before they start that process. Albeit you might well do the pilot first, but then once the pilot's done, then that then is the next phase um, as, you, as you move towards your full franchise agreements and a bigger rollout all of these documents need need to be um, considered and drafted um, correctly. So the franchise agreement clearly is a standout one there. So I think, David, if you could, it'd be great if you could then perhaps talk through what will be the key terms in a franchise agreement. Yeah, thanks, Gordon. Well, I mean, there are many key terms within the franchise agreement. And uh, to be honest, to summarise them all would be a podcast in itself. But but I'll just pick out uh, 10 or so of the, of the really significant terms. And these are as much as anything structural and how you uh, put together the franchise. But I'll just pick 10 um, just to, to give a flavour. The first, obviously, is the territory. Um, this is the area in which the franchisee can operate. Not so significant when it's a premises based. It's often the premises is, is chosen by the franchisee and approved by the franchisor. Um, but within that uh, environment, the franchisee will expect some sort of exclusivity or protection around the area to make sure that another outlet is not put uh, in an encroaching position uh, very close to it. If it's a mobile uh, territory or a delivery type ter territory, then again, the same principle, wider area, but again, protection for the franchisee to make sure that um, there is no encroachment within that territory. And as to how large the territory is, really you're looking at what territory would be viable for the franchisee. If it's too small, then it doesn't have the customer base. Equally, if it's too large, then it's not gonna be exploited by the franchisee within the time scale that you've given them. And the franchisor, the main aim is for the franchisor to have full exploitation of the business across all area within the country. So getting the territory right is key. Um, then looking at the term and renewal rights, the term, I mean, how long is the franchise given for? How long will the franchisee be able to operate the business? This, again, uh, needs to be a period that is sufficiently long for the franchisee to recoup its initial investment and then go on to make a profit over a number of years. 
that the actual uh, term of the franchise does vary, largely depending upon the initial investment. But you're looking at anything from sort of two to three years minimum up to five years, eight years uh, for a domestic franchise, quite typical. And you've also typically got a right of renewal. Um, so at the end of the initial three, four, five year term, if the um, franchisee is not in breach and is operating well, well, why wouldn't the franchisor grant a renewal? And that's quite typical. One renewal, um, automatic renewal if the conditions are met for a further period of the same five years or whatever. Um, makes a lot of sense from both sides if you've got a good operation uh, going. And then obviously another key term is the rights granted. So what is the franchisee actually getting? Well, effectively that is the right to use the brand and the right to use the system. They're the fundamental rights that are being granted. But the franchisee must pay for this. So financial terms is obviously key, key for the franchisor. These are often broken down into an initial signing on fee where you pay for the initial costs incurred by the franchisor to set up the franchise. That could be initial training costs, the cost of application and recruitment of the franchisee, and also uh, the, some of the legal costs in setting up the whole, um, the whole contract. Ongoing service fee is where the franchisor really makes its revenue. This is a percentage of turnover typically, although sometimes it can be a markup on products if there's a product uh, supply franchise. And then typically the franchisor will also charge an advertising fee, again, based on a percentage of turnover. This goes towards a central marketing fund for brand development um, that's used by the franchisor. The franchisor's obligations is another key area, but these are generally light touch. Um, they are essentially for the franchisor to provide the rights that it's uh, intended to give, to train the franchisee and its key staff, and also to provide ongoing support and crucially innovate, develop, enhance the system. That's really, that's what the franchisee is looking for. The franchisee's obligations is a large part of the contract, um, but it can be really boiled down into an essence that is to operate the business in accordance with the operations manual, in accordance with the directions of the franchisor. It's fundamentally what uh, the franchisee is obliged to do. Then the contract will also have termination rights. It's crucial for the franchisor to be able to remove a non-performing franchisee from the network. It's crucial for the franchisor, but it's also crucial for other franchisees. There is nothing worse for the network than for franchisees to see one franchisee not operating correctly when they're operating correctly themselves, because it creates a, a bad atmosphere within the network and damages all of the individual franchisees' own businesses. So termination rights for the franchisor. Crucially, it's worth saying that franchisees rarely have the right to terminate. And it's because the franchisee is agreeing to operate the business for the full term. The franchisor's financial metric is based on the fact that it will be training this franchisee to operate for five years. And a lot of the franchisor's costs are uploaded, that initial cost of training. They only recoup their money over the full term. So early termination is not an option. And then post-termination, obviously, if the franchise does come to an end through expiration or termination, the franchisee must debrand, must not compete for a reasonable period within a reasonable geography, mustn't solicit any uh, other employees of the franchise or its franchisees. Often there's a clause dealing with sale of the business. Because the franchisee doesn't have the right to terminate if there's a breach and the franchisee is locked in for a fixed period, you still want the franchisee to be able to get out if it needs to. And the way to do that is for the franchisee to sell the business to a new franchisee that comes in and replaces it. This is often linked to a right for the franchisor to match any offer. If the franchisor wants to take the business back in-house, if you like, and make it into a corporate um, outlet. 
is also subject to the franchisor's conditions and the franchisor being happy with the purchaser. And then finally, disclaimers and uh, acknowledgements. There's a real risk in a franchise model of misrepresentation, particularly if a franchisor is dealing with perhaps smaller um, franchisees that are new to the business environment and perhaps more easily influenced by a franchisor. So less sophisticated franchisees, uh, you need to be very careful with and make sure that they do fully understand what they are being um, given, the opportunity they're given and what are the risks. And therefore, the franchise agreement does have disclaimers and acknowledgements within it to make sure that they have understood that. And I guess, uh, I mean, Gordon, from your perspective, these disclaimers do lead us on to another aspect of franchising, which is there are risks with the franchise model. It's not hands free and it's not without liability. So maybe you'd like to just uh, have a quick chat through some of the, uh, the key risk areas for franchisors when they embark on a franchise uh, expansion. Yep, sure. Um... I think one of the key areas when we think about prior to signing the agreement, the first point really is more of a practical uh, one. It sounds common sense, but it's really trying to ensure that in your recruitment processes, you've got the right kind of, you're asking the right questions and you're finding out the right kind of information to make sure that you are appointing the right kind of franchisee for your business. Um, you know, if, you, if you get the wrong franchisee, then really, no matter what, if, no matter what you've got in your, in your legal agreements, um, of course, that's going to give you um, a certain level of protection. But really, in terms of the, the overall uh, success of that business, it's not going to work in the long term if it's just the wrong fit and the wrong partner for the business. So it's really important to actually do some real due diligence on your franchisee before you before you sign the agreement with them. The key areas that we've seen and experience is, is actually where franchisors have not taken that step and they've not um, taken a sufficient um, approach to, to really understanding the, the source of a franchisee's funds. Do they have sufficient access to funds to, to fund the business? Not just by paying the upfront fee, but actually the, you know, the capital investment that's required to, to fund that business, to, to get it started, the working capital. Or indeed, this is maybe more relevant to some international businesses, but you know, is that is there a kind of an opaque source of funds? Are there question marks or risks of, of kind of sanction lists and, and violations and, and money laundering um, elements? Again, it's important as a franchisor to try and get to the bottom of, of the franchisee structure and, and their source of income. Um, lack of experience to, for some systems is going to be a problem. Um, in the international context, that, that would certainly be true. But domestically, some actual some systems are, as we said earlier, the system is can be so easily replicated that actually you don't necessarily need a franchisee who's got a prior um, knowledge of your business in order to be a successful franchisee. They just need to have that right kind of attitude um, and desire to succeed. And really, that's the role of the franchisor is to do all the training to teach them the system. So that lack of experience may or may not be a factor, but again, it's important to understand what is their history, what what are, what have they been doing prior to this, and also competing businesses. And what what other business interests do they have? Is there actually a potential conflict with another business they've got? Um, is there a risk that they might be using um, the confidential information, know how they're getting from your business to to kind of leak into another business that they've got? So. All of that stuff is, is important to kind of get to the bottom of. And also it feeds into, as we said earlier, on those, on those uh, contracts is it helps in that process of identifying who are the right people or companies to act as they guarantee uh, to the franchise. And indeed, who are the right people that we need to have signing these deeds of undertaking about confidentiality and non-competition. So before signing the contract, really do that due diligence on your franchisee. 
I think another risk as well that comes up is, is as you said, David, is, is misrepresentation, um, and certainly that came to um, a head in a in a in a High Court case a few years ago involving uh, Papa John's um, and a franchisee called um, uh, El Sada Doily. Um, it's quite a quite a well-known case where she was able to um, bring a claim, a counterclaim, against Papa John's, who were um, they actually had, had instigated proceedings. They were suing her for failure to pay franchise fees. Um, the business had not been performing very well. She was in financial difficulties, um, but she brought a counterclaim for misrepresentation, and that was based on the fact that she said that the types of profit and turnover forecasts that she was given prior to entering the agreement actually uh, bared no relation to the reality of operating the business. And the judge in that case actually um, uh, sided with uh, Miss Doyle in that in that situation, despite there being the the kind of the boilerplate in the franchise agreement that tries to um, prevent those types of um, pre-contractual uh, documents having an impact on the legal relationship, the, the, the judge decided to overcome that and said, no, this is this is very relevant because clearly on inspection, Papa John's was actually um, not providing um, information that was that was specific to her territory and was essentially kind of plucking some figures out of the air in that context and, and saying the, this is what your business will earn and on that basis she entered into the agreement. So in that context she, she had a successful claim, she was able to defeat their, their claim and actually it was Papa John's in the end that had to, had to pay out a sizable amount of compensation to her to put her back in the position that she would have been in had she not entered into the franchise agreement. So it was, we're talking hundreds of thousands of pounds. So making sure your sales processes are right and your sales teams understand um, the limits so the legal limits of what of what can and, and, and can't be said uh, pre-contract is, is is clearly a very important point for franchisors i think within the system within the within the franchise agreement um, probably the key area um, is relates to competition law and the way that intersect, intersects with franchise systems um, and a franchise system is at risk of infringing European competition law if it's got the object or effect of restricting competition um, and is capable of affecting trade either within the European economic area or, or domestically within, within a member state. Um, and that will apply, this, this law will still broadly apply in the UK even though we're, we're leaving the European Union at the end of the year, our, our domestic competition law is going to mirror European competition law for, for, a, for a number of years. Um, so in order to maintain um, the uniform nature of a franchise system, protect know-how, operate that network effectively across different sales channels and geographies, a franchise agreement often seeks to regulate areas such as online activity, promotion, sales, marketing, territorial rights, uh, reservation of certain sales channels, uh, supply obligations, so obligating a franchisee to buy only from a franchise or, or their, their nominated supplier. There may well be um, some controls on pricing and also non-competes. But competition plays a role here because competition law pro prohibits something called hardcore restrictions. And these are particularly kind of restrictions that um, affect the franchise or franchisees' abilities to set their own prices or prevents them from being able to uh, promote or sell online. Um, so it's very important that not just in the franchise agreement, but also in the practices and the conversations that happen around the franchise relationship between the franchisor and the franchisee, that the franchisor is not overstepping uh, those boundaries that are set by competition law and is not overly restricting the franchisee in that respect. And it's, it's, it's interesting to know that in the last few years, I think it's probably true to say maybe kind of 10, 20 years ago, there was an assumption that 
the um, uh, both the UK competition authorities and the European um, authorities were not that interested in franchise systems. Um, there were there were there were you know there were bigger fishes to to catch. But actually, over the last few years, there's been an increasing focus now on uh, brands, particularly in the kind of the retail distribution, selective distribution, and franchise franchise sector. Um, particularly around these areas of, of online bans and online restrictions and price fixing. So brands such as um, Guess, Jeans, uh, Nike, Casio, uh, the manufacturer, Japanese manufacturer Sanrio, that's well known for, for, for Hello Kitty, uh, Universal Studios, um, the golf uh, brand Ping, and many others, they've all, they've all been on the end of very substantial fines um, from the European Union and the domestic uh, competition authorities for, for breaches of these exact issues in their distribution or franchise agreements. So it's very important that, that franchisors take this particular risk very, very, very uh, seriously and ensure that their council, their franchise, their franchise council they've appointed really understands that intersection between competition or and how it affects uh, franchise relationships. Because it's not just financial, implications there's also reputational uh, damage but also that there could be some some criminal liability as well for the for the directors of, of the franchise or so it's a it's a very very uh, important area so after after scaring uh, lots of franchise uh, businesses off uh, franchising from that point um, but let's talk about that's the downside but let's think about the the uh, the positives kind of what are the how can a business actually ensure that once it um, embarks on franchising that it's going to be a success David what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, just to just to recap what you said there, Gordon. I mean, there are risks with franchising. There's risks with any business, but um, the real success or the real um, advantages of franchising are it falls in that sweet spot between reward and risk. Where yes, there are risks, but they're minimised when compared to corporate expansion. They're minimised uh, in, in degrees by the level of control that the franchisor has. Uh, and the reward is there for the franchisor that does it right. So, you know, how can you not ensure success, but how can you take steps to 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 try to be as successful as you can using a franchise model? Well, there's a few things you can do, but really a lot of these we've touched upon. But just to recap, first, spend time to get the structure and the setup right. No two businesses are the same, so therefore, no two franchise agreements should be the same. Um, make sure that your franchise documentation reflects your own business. Therefore, don't use a generic template. Don't use something off the shelf. Use something that is bespoke for your business because that will be right. Um, and if you use something generic, you're guaranteed that there will be problems in the future because it won't cater for your specific business. So first of all, get the structure right. Secondly, maintain best practice. Whatever you do, do the best in class so that you have a reputation for franchising ethically and properly. Consider joining the BFA, the British Franchise Association, because uh, membership there shows that you have taken that step to seriously consider the ethics of franchising and to treating your franchisees correctly. Thirdly, we've touched on this, but focus on franchisee recruitment and selection. There is absolutely no alternative and no substitute for making the right franchisee selection. You can have the best franchise agreement in the world, but uh, the ideal is it's put in the bottom drawer and never looked at. You can guarantee it'll be looked at very quickly if you select the wrong franchisees. So set yourself very high standards when it comes to recruitment and don't reduce them. 
rather say no to a franchisee than recruit them just because you're low on numbers. Invariably, in our experience, it shows that most disputes are with those franchisees that, that were recruited in the first uh, year or two of the of the network being established. Um, don't fall into that trap. Expand more slowly if it means that you get the right franchisee. And then fourthly, innovate to keep the system relevant. Once a franchisee has been trained by, by you, they really then know how to operate the business and they can become, uh, fall into a situation where they think, well, actually, what are we getting? What's the value for the service fee we're paying? So that's where the innovation becomes very important. The franchisor should be uh, innovating, adapting, improving the business all the time and feeding those improvements down to the franchise network and training them in those changes so that the franchisee sees the value that they're getting. And then the final two really are manage the network and deal with issues promptly. So the temptation is if there's an issue, just let it fester, let it develop. Um, don't don't look at it, don't treat it face on. That's the wrong thing to do. Um, for the sake of all of the franchisees in the network, you owe it to them to look at franchisees, to police them. And if those that are underperforming, help them to perform correctly. And if they're not, essentially remove them from the network if you have to. And then the final, um, suggestion is really treat your network fairly be transparent with them and that really comes down to communication that is key communicate with your franchisees and actually the pandemic has shown that more than anything else talk to your franchisees make sure they know that you're listening to them and that you're thinking about them and involve them in your decision making it's not a they don't have a say in the sense that they don't approve they don't have to agree with what you're doing but involve them in the process, help them to understand what you're doing and the buy-in will be that much uh, more successful if they've understood the process. Um, so communication is key. And there, I guess, if you follow those uh, principles, then you've got a much higher chance of success. Great, thanks, David. Well, I think hopefully that's that's given uh, um, the listeners a, a, an overview of, of franchising and, and deepen their understanding of what's involved. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, David. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening.